I sin. I still I say lies. I still cheat. I do those things. Everyone everyone continues to stumble in the way of the future. But we are no longer identified by our sin. We are in Christ. Therefore, all that God sees is that we are saints and holy ones called to a big vocation. That's what we're going to talk about today. So he opens up Ephesians by saying, hey, the saints of Ephesus. So we get to inherit that. We are the saints of the garden. So we are holy ones of God. Then he goes on and he uses words like adopted sons and daughters. Paul will describe us as adopted sons and daughters. Now, this is is fascinating because the phrase he uses in Ephesians chapter 1 is a legal term used in the Roman Empire to describe those um, that are given legal rights to inherit their family's inheritance. In the first century, you can be disowned by your family if you were uh, a son or daughter. But if you were legally adopted, you could not be disowned, and you have the rights to everything your father had. And on top of that, in Ephesus, because of the Greek worldview, the Greek paradigm, babies that were born with any blemish, maybe they were disfigured, maybe they were a woman, because Greeks believed women were half men, they were half persons. That's their paradigm. They would take this, this child that was born with a blemish, walk them to the wilderness on top of the hill, and leave them to die. This was their paradigm. You needed perfection. And what would happen is, people would come to grab those babies and raise them up to become a part of the slave trade. And Ephesus was the center for slave trade in the Roman Empire. So imagine to a bunch of slaves you being told that the God of the universe has adopted you legally as their son or daughter, period. That's good news. That's gospel. So we have saint, we have adoption. Then he says that we were once slaves, but now we are free in Christ. Excuse me. We were once slaves, but now we are free in Christ. Um, so that's one thing. He talks about you go from slavery to freedom. And then the other thing he talks about is that we are God's poema. What's the word poema? We get the word about poem. Uh, it's a Greek word for a Hebrew word that, that describes God's creative power. And when Paul uses it to refer to those in Christ, he's referring to our identity being that of a piece of art. We are God's work of art. So when you start wondering about who you are in God, this is what Paul goes through three chapters describing. He calls you saints. He calls you illegally adopted. He calls you free, no longer slaves. He calls you God's piece of art. This is the good news that's revealed to us in the first three chapters. So, and here's a couple of other things. And I had a PowerPoint this morning, and uh, we just want to bless whoever took our projector, right? I love what... What Peter said this morning as we were praying, I was pretty bummed. Expensive uh, projector has been here for two two years, and um, I was pretty bummed. He said, "Let's just bless the God who took it. Whoever stole our our PowerPoint." And then I was thinking earlier, I'm like, "There's no way we're going to let a, not having the words on a screen keep us from worshiping." Amen. That's right, because the songs are in our heart, not just on the screen. Okay, Paul also says this: Before Christ, you were this. You were dead in your transgressions and sin. You follow the ways of the world. You were ruled by the ruler of the kingdom of the air. You were enslaved to the cravings and the desires of your sinful nature. You were objects of wrath. You were separated from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship. You were foreigners to the covenant and promise. You were without hope, without God. You were far away. 
This is what we were before God, before Christ. But in Christ, it says, we were blessed. This is all in Ephesians. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing. We are chosen before the creation of the world. We are holy. We are blameless. We are adopted. We are given grace. We are redeemed. We are forgiven. We are predestined. We are included in Christ. Let me catch my breath. I'm halfway done. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We are recipients of God's lavish grace and God's glorious inheritance. We are alive in Christ. We are saved. We are raised with Christ. We are seated with Christ. We are God's artwork. We are created and brought near. We are part of a new humanity. We have access to the Father. We are fellow citizens, members of God's household, and God's building blocks for His whole people. All God's people said, Amen. That is good news. This is the good news. This is what I get to share. That is who you are. Whether or not you think it, if you said yes to Jesus, that's what Jesus thinks you are. The last three, uh, last few months as we've been talking through Ephesians, we've been looking at Paul just pressing in on your identity so that you can learn how to live. And now we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about how we are to respond to this great gift of our new identity in Christ. In Christ, your identity has fundamentally changed. Paul is literally saying, this is who you are, and he's pulling you towards your future. Have you ever had a word spoken to you, an encouraging word that helped you through life, and that you looked at, that pulled you forward towards the future, gave you a sense of hope, gave you a sense of peace, gave you a sense of calling, purpose, identity? That's all that Paul is doing with the gospel news. Saying that this is who you are, so be who you already are. That's the invitation. Not to earn your way to some place in favor with God, but you already have God's favor. So live like it. That's what the next three chapters are all about. Your identity, identity is marked in Jesus. It's no longer identified by the sin, the brokenness, the past, the problems, the pain. None of that stuff. It's all rooted in Christ. Now, he's pulling us forward. So, we move, and so this is what we call, uh, what Paul is doing, is it's called eschatological realism. It's simply pulling you towards the future. It's what it already is true of you because of Jesus and God's just bringing. So you move from shame to adoption. Right? You move from slavery to freedom. From sinner to sin. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So I, I used this illustration a couple of uh, weeks ago, maybe even months ago, and I just want to do it again. But this is helpful to understand what Paul did in the last three chapters. Um, when I was 22 years old, um, I had a significant change in my life. For the last, for the 22 years prior, I'd learned how to live my life in a very particular way. I showered uh, only if I didn't surf that day. Um, I, I, uh, I would do the laundry uh, occasionally. Sheets would get washed once a month. Towels in the bathroom would get shot, uh, washed every two weeks. It didn't matter which way the toilet paper went on the roll. It just didn't matter because I was single. I lived my life the way I lived. Food was microwave meals and hamburger helper. I didn't care. But when I was 22, on June 9th, 2007, I got it right, I was pronounced husband. I was given a brand new identity. Did I have any idea how to live as a husband? No. In fact, the 22 years prior taught me how to live a selfish life. All of a sudden, everything in my life would change. All of a sudden, I would have to take a shower regularly. <laughs> the woman sitting next to me wouldn't sleep with me if I didn't shower. I would have to wash the sheets every week. I would have to make the bed, bed every day. 
Why would you think that if you're going to jump back in? That, that is the reason. And there, there is a particular way in which the toilet paper goes on the toilet paper roll. There is. And there are certain types of toilet paper that you buy and some that you don't. All of this stuff changes. Beds got made. Toilet paper got purchased and put on the right way. I, I washed the sheets regularly. I started eating healthy. I started noticing those things. Why? So that I could become a husband? Do that to earn my right to be a husband? Or I did it because I was operating out of who I already was. I learned to operate as a husband. I didn't do those things to earn my wife's favor. My identity was already husband. I had to learn how to become a husband. That's the gospel. So, we pick up in, um, in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. So Paul shifts the conversation. And if you have a Bible, grab it, turn to Ephesians 4. Or you can not turn to the screen, so it's not going to be there. Um, which way is it? Go back Okay. So Paul now transitions to the second part of it. So this is who you are. Now he's going to talk to us and challenge everyone that will say yes to God, everyone that says yes to Jesus, on how to live in view of this gospel. Now this might seem harsh, but Paul is writing to a group of non or new Christians. This epistle is for new converts. So as you read Ephesians and you read the theology, as you read the challenges he makes, He's going to challenge your relationship to alcohol. He's going to challenge the relationship to community. He's going to challenge the way you use your anger, the way whether or not you steal. He's going to talk about your marriage, your parenting style, your workplace, the things in the spiritual realm. He will challenge every aspect of your life. Everything has to change in view of who you are. Not to prove who you are, but out of who you are. So this whole book shifts on this one verse in chapter one, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Um, let's read this together. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. The entire book of Ephesians depends on that verse. Chapter 4, verse 1. Let me read this again. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble, gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep a unity, the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Highlight verse 1 of chapter 4. I'm going to read this to you in the message by Eugene Peterson. This is helpful translation for us this morning. It would be much easier to see it as well. But let's look at that real quick. Ephesians, uh, same verse, but it's done by uh, a guy named Eugene Peterson who wrote the, the translation of the message. Listen to this. In light of all this, in light of what? Everything. Remember, this is from our, our version. Uh, I urge you, in light of what? In light of chapter 1, 2, and 3, in view of everything that I just talked to you about who you are, here's what I want you to do. While I'm locked up here as a prisoner for the master, Paul's in prison at this point, I want you to get out there and walk. Better yet, run on the road that God called you to travel. I don't want any of you sitting around on your hands. I don't want anyone strolling off don't, don't, uh, down some path that doesn't go anywhere. Uh, and mark that you do this, and whatever you mark that you will do this with humility and discipline. 
not in fits and starts, but steadily pouring yourselves out for each other in acts of love. Alert at noticing differences in quick at many offenses. This is what we do as the rest. You are all called to travel on the same road and in the same direction. So stay together, both outwardly and inwardly. We have one master, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who rules over all, works through all, and is present in all. Everything you are, everything you think, everything you do is permeated with one Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. Paul now transitions from his epic story of who we are in God, which I just listed, and now he says, in view of this gospel, live it out. Be mature. Grow up. Walk the walk. Talk the talk. And fight the fight. The Greek verb here is that we are, this is our vocation. Our calling is our job. Paul doesn't have a full calling. This is one call for everyone that will come to faith. This is now your job. What is now your job? To live with Jesus at the center of your life in a way that reveals God to the world. This is now your job. Your job as a saint is to live in a way that reveals God to this world. The language is being called into battle. The language here is that we're being urgently called into battle. We have a deadline to meet. This is urgent. Guys, get your act together. Grow up. Put on your boots. And get going. We don't have time to waste. This is what Paul is doing. And you have all this awesome stuff, which we can sit around and go, yes, I'm so happy to be with God. I'm so happy that I'm no longer a sinner. Most of us stay here looking at our stomachs going, I still feel this, though. I still feel that I'm so far from God. I still feel like I'm a sinner. I still, what, what are we putting above God? Our feelings. Our pride. Our pride is having an inaccurate view of, inaccurate view of ourselves. He said, pride is an inaccurate view of yourself. So whether you're, you're thinking yourself highly, more highly than God thinks of you or more lowly, you have to have an accurate view of yourself. You don't just sit here and it's not just for you. Paul says, yes, this is who you are. For the sake of what? To partner with God in the renewal of all things. Live the gospel out. This is your calling, period. To live in a way that reveals the good news, the kingdom of God, that reveals God to a broken world. The question is, if the good news is really good news, why aren't more of us living like it? The good news is really good news. Why aren't more of us living like it? Is there a difference between you who claim to be God's beloved adopted saint and the person that you sit next to on Monday? Are you full of gentleness, peace, joy, hope, love, and humility? Do you go the extra mile? Do you not let the sun go down on your anger? Do you go to a dinner party and never gossip? Do you manage your, your relationship with alcohol appropriately? Do you look at women in a way that God looks at them, or do you use them for your lustful intentions? Do you still struggle for, for, with pornography? Do you, do you reveal God's love for your spouse in the way that you treat and talk to your? Do you handle your finances in a way that reveals that there is a God who's in charge of everything? Or do, you, do you know how to celebrate well? Or do you know how to party like the rest of our culture, like Bill talked about last week? Is your life as a Christian identified by the character in Christ that has been birthed within you or simply through a Sunday morning church conversation? Are you known as a follower of Jesus because you show up to church or because you look more and more like him? 
Is it because you put on the priest collar? Or because your Facebook status says, or your, your Facebook about me page that people know? Or is it by how you live? That's what Paul's getting. Because you can have your Bible, you can read your Bible in a year, but you're still not following Jesus for your life. You know what I'm talking about. That's a great place to start. Maybe Bible studies, Facebook statuses, uh, showing up on Sunday. That, that's just a given. It's what you do when the lights are off and nobody's home that Paul's getting at. This is the challenge for us to step it up. To live as a saint of them. So, I brought my surfboard. Um, I'm a surfer, for those of you that don't know. And here's your surfboard. The 6-2 JC Shane Dory model. I've had this for like seven years. I'm in the process of getting a new one. And um, I have a wetsuit. You can see that. You guys see the wetsuit? That's a 4-3, meaning for winter, wintery cold days like this. Um, when the water's cold, I'll put on the wetsuit, put on my boobies. That's the only thing I have to prove that I'm in surf boobies. And I actually have an iPhone that has an app that tells me when the swell's good, and I'll go out and surf. So, so I have a surfboard, I have a wetsuit, I have booties, I have an iPhone app. Now, does that make me a surfer? No. Now, if I take my surfboard and go to the beach, put it in the sand, and lay out in the sun, does that make me a surfboard? A surfer? No. Really? Some of you are like, yeah, that's how I do it. <laughs> <laughs> if I go to Hawaii and I rent a long giant table that can, anyone can stand and surf and somebody pushes me in the way, does that make me a surfer? Yeah. No! It means that you surf! <laughs> what makes a surfer? Well, what makes a cook? Huh? What makes a cook? Is it microwaving frozen dinners? <laughs> uh, is it going to Chipotle and bringing that over for a potluck dinner? That, that's my definition for sure. Or is it maybe experimenting and planning and prepping with delicious foods and experimenting with ingredients and seasonal vegetables and exploring the taste and providing new expressions of yourself in meals for loved ones? Or simply, a cook is someone who knows how to cook. Someone who cooks. A surfer is someone who consistently and regularly goes to the ocean to catch waves and surf the waves. Someone who consistently and regularly goes out to the ocean to catch and ride waves. A surfer surfs, a cook cooks. Saints live lives worthy of the common. Now, I was once in Mexico on a surf trip when I was uh, a few years ago. And I was surfing, uh, this is a while ago, I was surfing like double overhead waves. Now I'm going to translate everything. So that's like 10 to 12 foot waves. Okay, those are huge. And I was not an expert surfer, and I'm still not an expert surfer, but in one of my attempts, after this long paddle, meaning I swam out to the place where the, where the waves were breaking, it took forever. My arms are exhausted, but a set came in, meaning a, a group of waves that I could catch, and I tried to catch the first one, and I couldn't catch it, I wasn't fast enough, and I got near the impact zone. Now, the impact zone is where the waves are going to break. So I turn around, and there comes a giant 10-foot wave or so. It looks 20, 30, 40 feet. It doesn't matter when you're in the water, and it's about to break on you. It could be three feet, and you think it's, oh, it's head high. It's not. 
This temple wave crashed on top of me, took me out. My leash there broke off, so the leash is dangling. The board is headed toward the rocky shore that I just paddled from. And I'm being tossed in what seems like hours and hours and hours of being in the water. A couple of seconds. Um, I'm a teacher. I tend to get Right, the fish was this big, and that's sort of what happened. And uh, so there I was. I come up. I'm terrified. I'm gasping for breath. I turn around. Another wave just lands right on top of me. I mean, literally right on top of me, where I'm spinning again underwater, going up and down. And I'm absolutely terrified. I literally think I'm going to die. Seriously, thought I was going to die. I don't die, okay? But I'm terrified. I end up. I was saying here today, guys, I'm not dead. <laughs> in case you're wondering. Um, and I, I swim to shore, and, and I get to shore, and something completely changed inside of me. In, in an instant, something was completely different. I was terrified to go back in the water. In fact, I would come back from that very same surf trip completely altered by that moment experience. I wasn't able to pick up my board. I didn't go charge bigger waves. I wasn't able to get out in the water without this gripping fear. Every time I, I surfed in the water... I would be gripped with this fear, and I would wonder if I would die because a big wave would cause me to die. And slowly, terror began to paralyze me. My enjoyment for surfing went away because I was too afraid. Slowly, I began to surf less. I, I moved to Long Beach. I was lived by the beach before. I moved to Long Beach. There were not really any close waves here. And um, I began to get too busy with church planning. And sooner or later, uh, the beach seemed farther and farther away, and my surfboard, my iPhone app, my movies, and my wetsuit sat in my garage. I was no longer a surfer, because I didn't surf. I gave it up for three and a half years. I didn't surf. I didn't realize what I was missing until about six or seven months ago. About seven months ago, um, I, I jumped back in the water on a warm, sunny day, and I started surfing again. Now, I was absolutely terrified. I was surfing in like two foot waves in the unit on a longboard, which means it was ridiculous. I should be afraid. I should be more afraid of like a shark in that situation than the surf, or a kid's board jabbing in the face. Bronx. <laughs> Some of you little bronx are here. You can do airs over me. They're present. Now, I, I, I surfed, and it was fun, and when I was in the water, I found a piece of myself. I remembered that I was once a surfer, and that I loved to surf, and that I loved surfing. But eventually, if I wanted to continue this, I would have to challenge that fear. And so I did. Because I loved surfing so much, and because it was such a joy to me, I couldn't just say I was a surfer. I couldn't just let that talk about surfing in my past. I had to grab my board, put on my wetsuit, and head out to those waves and battle the demons inside me. Battle the past, battle the fear, battle the pain of my past so that I could enjoy something that I once enjoyed, so I could be what I wanted to be again because I wanted to be a surfer again. When Paul challenges us in Ephesians, Paul is saying, literally, to embody the good news in a way that it makes sense and it's noticeable. Not just to talk about the surfboards in your garage or the wetsuits or the surf, the waves that you surfed in Hawaii once upon a time, but every single day to get on your suit, get out on those waves, and just go for it. 
Yes, you've been hurt in the past. Yes, you're not going to get it right again in the future. Yes, you're going to stumble your way in the future. Yes, you're not going to read your Bible every single day, even if you try. Yes, you're not going to feel his presence in an ecstasy moment every single moment you pray. But he says, get out there and go. Live it out. Suit up. Boot up and go for it. That's what he's saying. And the truth is this. We have to fight for the things we love. We have to fight for the things we love. They don't come easy. And brothers and sisters, the best way to live is the gospel of It's the good news. The best way to live is the way God intended you to live in the first place. So yes, you're struggling with addiction to alcohol. You're struggling with pornography. You're struggling with uh, with an anger issue that every time you, uh, someone says anything, you get defensive and you respond with words you should never say. Yes, you struggle with these things, but Paul says, boot up and go to battle against that. He'll say in Ephesians chapter 4, in the end of this verse, or the end of this chapter, take off the old self and put on the new self. They'll challenge us to live this out. We get to get up every day and live out the good news. Brothers and sisters, our church would be filled with thousands and thousands of people who just woke up in joy once in a while and said, I, I want to share the good news this morning. Not with the pulpit. That's an easy job. The pulpit is an easy job. All I have to do is talk. It's what happens after this sermon that really matters. How I am to my wife and my friends and my family that really the gospel is lived out, not when I'm standing on stage preaching about it. This is the easy part. The calling is for us to identify ourselves in Jesus and live like it. We're going to follow God with every aspect of our soul. We, and Paul will say we do this with humility. We think of others before we think of ourselves. This is how saints live. We do this with humility. Uh, the picture you have for humility is this. In John 13, Jesus has been given all the authority of heaven and earth and on earth to him. He recognizes God gives him everything. You know what he does with all of that power. This is the image. Jesus is given all the power in the universe. And he takes off his clothes and he wipes his friend's feet. You want to be great in this world, you say? Be the least. You want to know what humility is? That's humility. He says, do it with gentleness, which just imagine holding a child. For me, thinking of gentleness is treating a little baby. How I would hold a little baby. That's, think about that in your marriage. You want, you want some help in your marriage? Talk about treating your wife as if she was a newborn baby. When she makes you upset, when she burns the toast, whatever it is. Hopefully, you're not losing it over her toast. Talk to me over here if you are after service. Okay, um, let, me, let me come into land. There's so much more I want to say. Um, uh, with, with patience, oh, the word there is steadfast. Steadfast, just the steady presence. You just, you just keep, you're unmoved by the waves of life. Saints live unmoved by circumstances. Death comes knocking at the door, and we live in a certain way. Uh, and he says, bear with one another in love, and pour ourselves out for each other. See, bearing with love is, love is not a feeling, it's action. Every time we come together, we have an opportunity to interact with each other in demonstration of our caring kindness expressed in love. And Paul will say, take pains or do everything you can to be unified. And the point of unity in the church, which we'll touch on next week, the point of unity is this. When, when people that have different perspectives and personalities come together and love each other and are unified, it reveals God. 
Because God's bringing one, God's the Holy Spirit, unique and diverse yet one. And so the church is designed in, in uh, Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17 is that we would be one as the Father and the Father. That is, that is why it's such a significant deal for the family to not gossip, not backbite, to not assume the worst, but assume the best, to do everything we can for each other to keep the unity. That's, that's what I'll say. We'll go on to argue why it's important. We'll talk about that next week. So, oh man, I've got a bunch of stuff out. <laughs> you know when you have a lot of notes, it's either going to be really good or really long. And so we're going to shift you good. Um, <laughs> let me say this. How we lo- love each other will reveal God to the world. I said I, had, I saw an illustration yesterday. I was at the Memorial Service of Cheryl. And brothers and sisters, if you are a part of the Franklin Bear community, you have to be so proud of the testimony you displayed yesterday morning. Yes. Literally, when Sherilyn was diagnosed with Bell's palsy, they said, we're going to walk with you. She was terrified. She lived alone in a one-bedroom house, a one-bedroom apartment, and she was scared. And her community group committed that she would not have to worry about a thing. She then got brain cancer. That's what it was. And slowly, she died. She passed away. This community group loved with flesh and blood. What's flesh and blood? Meals. They showed up with meals. They cleaned their place. They, they moved her out of her house. They stored her. They showed up time and time again. They prayed for her. They cared for her until she died and went to the presence of the Lord. Literally, they were the hands and feet of Jesus Christ manifested for her, loving her in a way that revealed God yesterday. There were people that didn't know Jesus that wanted to come to church and at the border because of how that community group and how Cheryl lived their lives. Lived their lives. Period. There's a testimony. So I want to just say, our church is doing it. Yeah. That might be a small example of so many other ways that we're carrying um, the weight of loving, uh, loving each other in a way that we give to God to the world. So, let me end with this. And I'm sorry about Let me do some of this. How, how are we doing that? Follow us for the next three chapters challenging every aspect of we don't, we don't challenge our lives out of guilt, out of shame to be a better person. We do it because we already are that person. Fundamentally, this is who you are that's worth it. God invites you to flourish in your life. To live out the best possible way you can possibly live. To live out the best life you can possibly have. The more you become like Jesus, the more you will become yourself. The more joy you will experience, the more peace you will find. Trials will come. I'm not preaching prosperity. Just because you put God first doesn't mean he's going to make you prosper. You must face a bloody cross. But Jesus, or Paul invites us to fight for the healthy of you. To fight for the happy of you, the patient of you, the kind of you. The one that doesn't struggle with the false identity of the self-hatred, but the one that learns to love themselves and what God loves. The one that's slow to anger, the one that's full of joy, the one that's gentle. Put off your old self and put on the new self. Amen? Amen. I want to pray for people, but I want to give some practical advice. How, how do you do this? And I, this is just a starter, because we're going to talk through this as we go. But here's some, some of the things that I've been thinking about as we um, were uh, processing. How, how do we begin to live a life worthy of the calling of the beginning? How do, we, how do we even begin to think about living in a way that reveals God? Doesn't that sound crazy? I look at my life, and if I just somebody just came to my house and watched me on a regular basis, 
they would not see God. They would see an angry little boy. <laughs> right? He doesn't like himself at times. He's impatient. He's anxious. He thinks the world revolves around him. I'm just confessing my sin. But here's what I know helps. Number one, you can't change overnight. Take one day at a time. Number two, be gracious to yourself. Because God's gracious to you. Every time you stumble, you don't have to put Jesus back on the cross. Just claim your forgiveness and move forward. Number one, day at a time. Number two, be gracious to yourself. Number three, spiritual disciplines. You do things that are not natural to become natural at them. So fast. Read scripture on a regular basis. Scripture will replace those lives. So what happens is this, is over time, if, if you're a guy that struggles with self-hatred, right, um, you're not good enough. You, you might be uh, preparing a sermon and think there's no way people will like this. What does God say about that? You're good enough. Right? That's, that's in uh, Mark chapter 1. What does God say? You're my beloved. Does anything that I do have anything to do with who I am? No. I can show up here and fail, and God's going to love me the same. So for you, we, we read scripture to put the, the, the lies out of our heads when you are mine. Um, so, so fast, read scripture, spend time in silence and solitude. Rest, 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 rest. Don't work. Don't clean up the house. We have to learn how to stop. And be. Some of us need to learn Sabbath. Those are scriptures. We do those things not because we want to get good at reading our Bible, we want to know God. We do silence and solitude so that when we're in a community, we know how to speak what God wants us to speak. We do rest and Sabbath so that we know our identity doesn't come from what I produce. You know? yes. So these are ways that we begin to live out who we already are. And lastly, I'll say this. Um, uh, the Holy Spirit. It might be overwhelming and exhausting to think that you have to do all this stuff to reveal God, but guess what? God comes and dwells inside of you so that you can live the life you intend to He will empower you to overcome your addiction to pornography. He will empower you to love your spouse the way He wants you to love your spouse. He will empower you to deal with those identity issues. The disorders that have consumed your mind and heart. Those little things that we, we tend to cheat on. He will empower you to live out of that and teach you how to live in a way. We can't do it on our own. As much as you want to read self-help books, I want to read self-help You cannot do it on your help. This isn't self-image or self-esteem. This is God-image, Jesus-image of you. Live it. The yes. so saints, live it. Amen. Amen. Can we pray? I want to pray for someone else. And we'll worship and what we do as a church. Um, so why don't you just close your eyes? Actually, stand. This is next week and sitting for a while. You have. I'll sit. You stand. I'll sit. You stand. Can, can I invite you to close your eyes? Mm-hmm. If you're comfortable, hold your hands out. So you can see it's just a posture of one you receive. You've got the dinner tables. And we say a prayer, you hold your hand, you hold your hand next to you. This is a posture of just openness. We believe that God is living, and the Spirit is here to empower and transform us to be the people that we already are in Christ. So we need His help. Here's what I know I know that words can only go so far. Even anointed words, whether they were or not, can only go so far. 
Specifically, I want to pray, first of all, for college students. 